0: Forensic Investigations to Miscarriages of Justice. What's the Story Crime is the home for all true crime fans who want bingeable, addictive, crime-based content. A lot can happen in 3 years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which to get started visit plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss
0: time's a funny thing when you're a kid you sort of live in the
2: moment don't you Say, for example, when it's Christmas, that advent calendar, gosh, that takes a long while to open all those windows. But when you're an adult, it's like gone in a flash, isn't it?
0: Our relationship with the past, particularly our childhood, is defined by our memories. And the more time that passes, the trickier the relationship between memory and reality becomes. Sometimes we overly romanticise the good times to make us happy or downplay the bad to protect ourselves. But there are events and people that are so indelible that they feel perfectly preserved, like they've been in aspic.
2: Quite often actually, people say to me, well, you're only nine. You know, do you actually remember it? Do you remember what happened? Or do you remember being with Jill? Or... Thank God, every memory that I have of Jill is the most precious memory.
0: Over 45 years ago, Jill Brown, a 19-year-old woman from the seaside town of Dovercourt, Essex, walked out of her family home and was never seen again. Now all her sister Libby has left of her are memories. I'm Pandora Sykes and you're listening to The Missing, a podcast series produced by What's The Story Sounds and brought to you with help from the charities Missing People and Locate International. They believe that all of the cases in this series could still be solved. This is the missing Jill Brown.
2: I was at the local hospital for 16 and a half years as a, as a secretary in
0: ophthalmology. That's the voice of Libby, Jill's younger sister, by 10 years. Libby used to work for the NHS. These days, she can be found in her home in Suffolk. There, she makes bespoke pottery creations in a studio converted from an old stable. It is a magical process. You know,
2: we've literally got a piece of mud and it goes through all of these different stages where anything can go wrong, but things can go incredibly right as well. And sometimes you get really happy mistakes, things that you think are going to come out one way and they come
0: out even better than you think. Let's roll back the clock to 1978. The year of Jill's disappearance, when Libby and the rest of the Brown family were living in Dovercourt. Which is a, a little town on the Essex coast. At this point, Jill and Libby's older sister, Janet, had gotten married and started a family in Romford. The remaining sisters stayed with their mum, Edna, and dad, Will who moved from Ilford to Dovercourt to start a business, a cafe with an attached shop. So the cafe
2: was was open for lorry drivers and um, taxi drivers and anyone who wanted to go in for a cup of tea and a fry up really. So my grandma used to, to cook for that. And then the shop was one of the shops that is a convenience shop. So it would have not newspapers, but You would have food in there if you wanted a cheese sandwich and um, sweets and pastries and all bits and pieces that you might need, cigarettes, that sort of thing. So it was called the Devon
0: Caff. It was a family affair.
2: Mum, Dad, my aunt and my grandma all run that together. And uh, yeah, we lived above the, the cafe and my grandma lived above the shop. Mum used to do the most of the time in the shop. My aunt used to come sometimes and and work in the shop. And um, Dad used to do all the heavy work and all the lugging stuff around and, you know, all the stuff that needed doing like that. I remember wanting to help out in the shop, but getting under my mum's
0: feet. (laughs) Given how old she was at the time, it's no surprise that Libby's memories of the shop very much centre on one type of product,
2: the sweets, obviously. So you used to be able to get um, blackjack and fruit salad. You could get two of those for a penny, and um, shrimps. And shrimps were bigger than they are now. And bubble gum And and then they had rows of shelves of the jars of sweets that you got a quarter of a pound of whatever your know, sherbet pips or off candy or any of those and mum and dad um, also had a whippy ice cream machine which was wonderful I used to come home from school and say to mum can I just have a little ice cream and she'd say yes just a little one um, and end up I would fill the whole cone up and then just do a little tiny whip on the top and mum not knowing that i would like done the whole cone. <laughs>
0: the Browns were a religious family
2: so she used to take me to church every, every week. It was sort of like a bit of a rule, really. I went to a Catholic school, Catholic primary school, which was absolutely lovely. There was 12 in our year at school. So it was tiny. Everyone knew each other. So, um, so yeah, it was, a, it was a
0: proper little community. When she wasn't in school, Libby spent her time exploring Dovercourt with Jill.
2: You know, she would often take me to the beach. She had lots of friends. She wasn't, um, she wasn't a rebel or anything. She didn't go out partying all the time. Wasn't that type of girl at all. Very homely, very content to be with the family. She was on a pedestal to me. I, she was my big sister who
0: I really looked up to. Jill was very family-orientated. She loved being around her mum, dad and siblings. The warm, loving home her parents created for them was something she intended to replicate for herself when the time was right.
2: Finding the love of her life, getting married, you know, having a family of her own, that sort of thing, rather than, yeah, I want to go to college, I want to go to university.
0: She also adored animals.
2: There was a litter of cats that had been abandoned and I remember her sneaking one of these cats home and I remember the day actually she came home and it was winter time and she has got a big coat on and this cat was like snuggled into her and dad said, What have you got under your coat? And she's like, Oh, these little poor little cats were were like freezing cold, look, and and got this little kitten out. And he's like, Yeah, okay, you can keep it. So so, yeah, she got this. I remember bringing this little cat home.
0: One of Libby's most vivid memories of her sister involves a prank the pair of them played in a local laundrette.
2: We were always messing about. Um, so we would... I remember um, Mum and Dad didn't have a washing machine at one point. and And um, just around the corner from us was a laundrette. And there was a lady in there who was quite a grumpy lady. And I think we'd, like, gone into the shop next door and come in and she'd come out and told us off for coming in and out of the laundrette while we were waiting for the washing to to wash so we decided that we would keep opening the door and shutting it and doing different accents and different voices so she would think that there was a massive crowd of people in the laundrette and I remember laughing so much I was crying
0: and you know it just really silly things but
2: it just really tickled me
0: Jill was very generous with her time and money and was always buying her sister presents. I remember her buying Miss Spirograph, which I thought was absolutely incredible. And for anyone listening to this born after the year 1995. Spirograph is, um, they're
2: plastic discs with little holes in. And you put them on to a piece of paper and you put your pen in one of the holes and you just draw round with the um, pen and it makes all these
0: beautiful patterns. I used to love it. Running their own business kept Jill and Libby's parents very busy. Mum used to have Sun Saturday
2: afternoon and Sunday morning off work and that was it. And you know the shop was open at I don't know six seven o'clock in the morning right the way through to nine o'clock at night. My aunt used to come in like Halfway through the day, and maybe you know do a couple of hours or whatever, but
0: Mum and Dad were really tied to the shop, so Jill, when she wasn't working herself, often looked after Libby. The pair grew very close, very fast, and they even shared a bedroom.
2: We had bright yellow walls, I remember that and I remember the amount of times I used to say things like, oh, uh, Jill, just tell me a story before you go to sleep. Just tell me a story. And she'd say, oh, once upon a time, there was a naughty little girl called Elizabeth and she wouldn't go to sleep. The end. And, you know, things like that. Or I remember, um, you know, I'd hear like a little rustle or something and say, have you got some sweets? Um, Are you eating sweets in bed? She'd say, no, I'm not eating sweets in bed. So, uh, yeah, I was just, I was always there. Jill finished school at 16. Academically, she she wasn't an A-plus student or anything. So, yeah, she did
0: struggle at school and I think she probably couldn't wait to leave school, to be quite honest. She then had a series of odd jobs before landing a more regular gig at a laundry. I think it was one of these jobs that um, you didn't have to think an awful lot,
2: but um, you've got lots of friends around you that are all doing the same sort of thing and, you know, a real young girl community sort of job. So it was in town, so she used to walk to to work, meet up with one of her chums from work, walk to work and then catch the bus home.
0: When it came to her social life, Jill didn't much enjoy spending her weekends boozing. She
2: wasn't one to like go out and get drunk and come home sort of in the early hours of the morning or anything.
0: And as far as night spots went, Their hometown didn't exactly have much to offer in that respect. I mean, there wasn't any clubs anyway in in Dovercourt. Jill had plenty of friends, but she was also very content to be at home, particularly during the festive season. Christmas, 1977, wasn't a particularly momentous one. It was just a very
2: ordinary Christmas, as in Christmas dinner, paper hats, crackers, you know, all the trimmings yeah everyone cooking together everyone being together so we used to open our stockings in the morning get ready for the christmas lunch and then um take it in turns to open our presents in the afternoon just like a proper family christmas yeah just all being together and i think probably because mum and dad were always so busy and it was just nice for us just to relax and all be together I mean, a lot of snoozing, I think, from the adults. Um, (laughs) But, um, yeah, just a
0: normal, happy family Christmas. But it would come to be a hugely significant one. It would be the last one they spent together.
2: I'm pretty sure Jill went out New Year's Eve with her friends. And then it was back to work. With the festivities over, it was time for normal life to resume. So that year, New Year's Day, fell on a weekend. So that's why it was the 3rd of January that was her first day back at work.
0: Libby has turned over the morning of January the 3rd thousands of times in her head. But she'd be lying if she said there was anything out of the ordinary about Jill's actions that day.
2: So just a very normal day, just, um, you know, breakfast and, you know, walking out the door. Bye, see you later. That sort of thing. Nothing deep, nothing, you know, extra huggy or anything like that. Nothing to indicate, I'm not going to see you anymore. Libby does, however, remember the weather. It was a particularly foggy day that day. Jill walked to work. So she would walk up to a place called Upper Dover Court, which there's like a few shops there and, um, a war memorial and a co-op and that sort of thing. That would have taken her probably half an hour and she would meet a friend there and they would carry on walking into town, which would have probably taken them another maybe half an hour. So that was what she normally did. And then when it was time to come home after she'd done a day's work, she would catch the bus and get the bus home in the evening.
0: Libby always made a point of meeting her sister at the bus stop.
2: So I, I tended to hang around in the shop and, and you know, with mum and dad and, and grandma. And then um, obviously be looking at the clock to see what time, you know, to wait for this bus. and. Um, It was quite a busy road that we we lived on, so mum or dad used to always cross me over the road and I would walk round the corner and um, meet Jill off the bus.
0: That evening, Libby did as she always did and made for Main Street to welcome her sister home. At 5.30pm, Jill's bus pulled up to the stop. Libby smiled in anticipation, excited to see her sibling. And to hear about her day, but then the door opened, and there was no sign of Jill. She didn't alight. Libby's smile faded as the bus took off down the street. This was odd, she thought to herself. You could normally set your watch by Jill's arrival, but not today.
2: And I remember standing on one side of the road, thinking. I'm going to really get into trouble if I cross this road on my own um so I remember waving at Mum so she could come and cross me back again and Mum just said oh you know maybe she's just missed the bus maybe you know she was late out of work or she was chatting to somebody or something so you know that's fine we'll just go and she wasn't bothered at all you know she people miss buses don't they so she crossed me over for the next bus and again she wasn't on the bus I don't know if mum and dad were particularly, like, really worried at that point. However, it got to about
0: eight o'clock and she still hadn't come home. Libby's dad, starting to get concerned, asked her if she knew the woman who her sister walked to work with in the morning and where she lived. And I
2: did. I'd been round to this lady's house and so... I knew where it was I just didn't know the name of the road or the number of the house so I was in my pajamas you know I put my coat on and we went off in the car and uh, pulled up outside this lady's house and dad went and knocked on the door and this lady hadn't been at work that day so she'd got the flu so she'd phoned in sick and she said um you know, I, I haven't been at work today, so I didn't meet up with Jill at, at, Dover Court, at Upper Dovercourt. But she gave Dad a, a, um, an address of another lady who, um, you know, worked there and, and didn't live too far away. So we drove round to her house, and um, he went in and uh, went to the door and spoke to this
0: lady. Libby remembers waiting in the car, watching through the window as her dad knocked on the door. When he returned a few minutes later, she could sense that whatever he'd found out, it wasn't good. Libby's dad turned around in his seat and said, Jill's not even been at work today. Libby's stomach dropped like a stone.
2: So therefore, he was re- both of them were really panicked at that point because instead of it being, she's not, you know, it's three hours since we should have seen her, it is now you know, 12 hours since... We haven't seen her and we don't know where she is. You know, nobody knows where she is.
0: They drove home. Libby remembers at that stage, her dad didn't know whether to be angry or afraid.
2: Maybe she was trying to pull a fast one and, you know, she'd skived off work or something. But also that panic of, of, you know, oh my goodness, where is she?
0: By the time they got home, he had decided it was the latter. He picked up the phone and called the police.
2: So now what happens with the police is that very first period of time is like the golden time where, you know, they can do all their investigations and everything. It wasn't like that in the 70s. In the 70s, you needed to wait 24 hours before somebody was considered as missing. And the police sort of, like, fogged him off a bit and said, you know, she's a teenager, she's probably out with her mates, you know, there's nothing to worry about.
0: Will's concerns were falling on deaf ears. After trying and failing to mobilise the authorities to go out into the night and find his daughter, he decided he'd simply have to do their job for them.
2: Yeah, that night he drove around the whole of Harrington and Court searching for her mum phoned everybody so all of our family um lived in London or in in Essex obviously the first person she phoned was Janet um and said is Jill with you and and Janet's like why would Jill be with me so pretty much all night they were phoning around um phoning friends to see if she was with them and yeah dad was traipsing around the the town just looking for her
0: Will made for the police station, arriving shortly after 4.30 in the morning. The duty officer took one look at the man standing before him and realised he wasn't going to take no for an answer this time. When I was little,
2: what I realised very quickly was if I kept quiet, I would know what was going on because people would have conversations and... Sort of not realise that I was listening, but you do listen because you do know what's going on. So I remember, I remember hearing mum and dad crying, which was really difficult to hear, but they didn't know. They put a front on all the time. They were the parents. They were the grown ups. They were strong because they had to be strong for me, but I could hear what was going on. And, um, I remember sitting on my bed very early on, and thinking, I've got to be really good because mum and dad are going through a lot here. And that's quite a lot for a kid to, to have to cope with.
0: The police came to the family's home on Oakley Road. And
2: I remember them taking everyone in the house's fingerprints, including mine, so that they could take away items that were in our bedroom So they could see what her fingerprints looked like. I
0: remember them being pretty tough on mum and dad, actually. Libby had hoped the police's involvement would be the first step on the way to bringing her sister home. Instead, she was forced to watch as her parents were treated like suspects in their own daughter's disappearance. So where we lived, there was this shop and the cafe below... Then the first
2: floor was where the kitchen and the living room was. And then the top floor was like a little attic, two attic rooms that were the bedrooms. And within those attic rooms, there was sort of like where the ceiling sloped down, there was storage area and this storage area um, with the people that had had it before us, they'd screwed the door shut of these, this storage area. And the police were like looking around and they were like, why are these doors screwed shut? So dad said, well, it's been like that for forever. And they're like, have you screwed these doors shut? And they unscrewed them all and everything. And and we're quite almost accusing mum and dad. And I remember the priest coming round to give support and the police literally saying, okay, what have you done with her? And, you know, seeing mum and dad break down So the police did all this in front of me, like this
0: little kid. So, you know, that was pretty tough. Libby looked on, powerless to do anything, as this ordeal unfolded in front of her eyes. It was a brutal introduction for a nine-year-old to the harsh realities of the world. The following week, Jill's picture was in the local paper. It was called the Harwich and Manning Truth Standard. I think it's just called
2: the Harwich Standard now. It wasn't even anywhere near the front page. It was
0: like, I don't know, halfway through the, the paper and just a tiny snippet. It would be a year before Jill's disappearance was deemed newsworthy enough to make it to the front page. Meanwhile, the investigation, if you could call it that, continued. You had to go by
2: what people saw. And if nobody saw anything, how can they investigate it sort of thing? I think they probably interviewed her friends and things
0: like that, but I don't think it was a big deal to them, to be quite honest. The Browns did their best to pick up where they had left off, but everything was different now. Edna in particular was struggling. I think it was really hard for mum
2: to go back down to the shop because of gossipy sort of people as well. I don't think she could have coped doing that. My aunt took over. I was really lucky, as I say, to be in such a lovely little school where everyone was really supportive and caring. So I felt okay. I did feel supported. I remember the teacher sitting us down and her saying to all of the kids, you know, we really need to be kind to each other because, you know, what's going on? Like, be kind, particularly to me, because of what's going on. Dad sort of, like, took over the role of um, looking after me, so he, he um,
0: you know, sp- I spent a lot of time with my dad, you know, afterwards. Time passed, and eventually, the rubberneckers moved on to the next tragedy. But Jill's family were left with a gaping hole in their lives. Libby, sharing a room with her sister, was surrounded by reminders of her everywhere she looked.
2: I remember coming home from school one day and it was a long time afterwards. You know, we're talking about maybe a year afterwards and I remember going to put something in the wardrobe and all of her clothes weren't in there. And um, I opened the drawer and none of her clothes were there. And I remember being really angry and sobbing and my dad holding me and saying, "Um, I can't believe you've packed all of the clothes away. Why have you done that? Why have you done that? And I've been really upset about it. And him being really upset holding me because, you know, what do you do when when your little girl's broken? I I definitely remember that um, like it was yesterday and feeling dad hugging me and and just rocking me. He couldn't say everything was going to be okay. That was one thing about my dad. He wouldn't have promised anything that he couldn't have delivered. And probably seeing, hearing that as well, you know, not having him say, oh, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry, she's going to come home. And, you know, my dad was really, a really strong man. Yeah, so, you know, not hearing that
0: because he couldn't have said it. Gradually, interviews conducted by the authorities revealed some more details about Jill's movements on January the 3rd.
2: They interviewed people around her work, even down to, I think there was some building work going on opposite one of the chaps who was like on the building site had, uh, sort of waved to her and, and said, Oh, hello, darling sort of thing. And, uh, you know, do you fancy going out for a drink or whatever? And he was even interviewed. So she definitely didn't get to work. There was one sighting from one of the people who used to come into the cafe was a man who delivered coal. In those days, you used to have coal min. And he remember seeing her walking that day, not far from, from home, but on the route that she would have been walking. But that is pretty much the only sighting.
0: Sadly, nothing actionable ever came of the police's inquiries. Jill's mother and father responded to their elder daughter's disappearance in the only way they knew how. By doing everything they could to make sure it never happened again. From that point, a whole life changed.
2: Mum and dad's way of parenting, maybe, completely changed. You know, I had a very strict upbringing of how late I could be out at night. All my mates were out till 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. I had to be in at 8 o'clock. Who I was with, what I was doing. And I can understand that. But when you're a teenager, you don't want that
0: but um, I can understand it. Jill did her best to carry on, but Dover Court was a small town and an event like a young woman's unexplained disappearance has a tendency to linger. Its ripple effects felt when you least expect it.
2: I'd left home but still lived in the town and I was having some post delivered by a girl who was probably a year older than me. And her dad used to be a teacher, a headmaster of a school. And so it was like a boarding school. So the kids often used to go into the shop. So this girl was a year older than me. So she would have only been about 10 at the time of Jill disappearing. And she said to me, did you ever find out what happened to your sister? And I said, "Uh, no, no, we didn't. So you should well your family shouldn't have been so horrible to her. should they um you know obviously there was like a big bus stop and I was like how dare you I, I was just taken completely taken aback and I was so angry I was really really angry about it and um you know I'd obviously put her right but that was really hard to hear because you know I know my family and I know that they would never have done anything to harm Jill. And to think that, you know, that gossip had gone around and she'd heard it at the age of 10 and, you know, carried it on all those years. For people to jump into things so quickly and are very opinionated and don't always think that, you know, there's people behind
0: all of those comments it's no surprise to Libby that over the years, people have come up with inaccurate, outlandish and hurtful theories about her sister's whereabouts. When Jill first went missing, the police explored every possible outcome, one of which was the idea that Jill had taken her own life.
2: So when she was baby, she had to have an operation as a tiny baby so some of her intestine had got infected and gone bad when she was literally tiny I think before she was even born so she had to have monthly injections for that and she was the first baby to have survived this particular procedure so they were going to monitor a her throughout her life and all of these different things. And because of that, she'd got some scars on her. So she's got some scars on her tummy and she's got some scars on her arms. And mum or dad obviously had said about these scars because they were quite prominent. I mean, the scars on her tummy looked a little bit like a tree, you know, coming from a belly button. So obviously, When you fill in a missing person's inquiry, you say all of those things because they are distinguishing features. And the police immediately jumped on that, oh, she must have tried to commit suicide then if she'd got scars on her arms. And I
0: remember them saying that in front of me as well. This avenue of inquiry never washed with Libby and her family. Jill was content and talked about a future with a partner and children nothing about her demeanor in the days and weeks leading up to her disappearance suggested that anything was amiss
2: i remember sitting down recently and talking to janet and i said well there's there's two outcomes really first outcome is that she's out there alive well happy living her own life not even thinking about us or not even thinking that you know we care or whatever the second thing um I've only just recently started to be able to voice, which is that somebody had dealings with it and took her away from us. So she said, no, there isn't, there's three outcomes. And I was like, well, what's the other outcome? She said, the other outcome is that we will never know. And, whoa, that is... That's pretty hard
0: to get your head around. Until very recently... Libby has held on to the belief that one day her sister would come back.
2: I sort of think that this this last push is sort of a, almost like a bit of a, for me, almost like a bit of a last hurrah. You know, forty five years is a long time. People don't remember. If it had happened last week, then you know you might be able to get somebody say, "Oh gosh, yeah, I saw a girl who looked like that." But Forty-five years—I can't even remember what I did last week, let alone forty-five years ago, or who I passed in the street yesterday. So it's—it's it's quite a big ask for somebody to, you know, come up with something new forty-five years later. So yeah, I—I I do feel that this is sort of, to be quite honest, I'm quite exhausted about thinking constantly about it, which sounds really mean, but it's like a roller coaster. I had so much hope in this media thing going out um, with the police. I had so much hope and nobody's come forward. So you're down in the doldrums again and then, you know, something else will happen and you'll get lifted or, you know, you try and lift yourself out of it. And it's hard to have that disappointment
0: over and over and over again. Ultimately, The length of time that's passed, the lack of leads and the ever-decreasing odds of a reunion don't matter to Libby. She'll never let go of the hope that one day she'll hear a knock on the door and see her sister's smiling face again.
2: It's always been a dream, it's always been the wish. The wish when you blow your candles out of your birthday cake. The wish when you pull a wishbone Um, at Christmas, it's always been I want Jill to come
0: home. In many cases, it takes just one piece of information to lead police or family to the answers they crave. If you know what happened to Jill, or you remember seeing someone like her on January 3rd, 1978, your information could be vital. Even if you've never heard of Jill Brown before listening to this episode, you still could help. Visit our website, themissingpodcast.org, where you'll find more information on this and every other case we featured in the series. The series is also made with the help of Missing People, a charity who offers support to the families of the missing. Their helpline is open to offer support and advice if you've been affected by anything in this episode. We can't say this enough. It takes just one person with the right information to solve any of the cases in this series. The Missing is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Pandora Sykes. The episodes are produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. The executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, You can listen to them exclusively on What's the Story Crime. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime.